This podcast is sponsored by Medtronic. Founded in 1949, Medtronic is a global leader in medical technology, services, and solutions, and employs more than 85,000 people worldwide, serving physicians, hospitals, and patients in more than 160 countries. Through innovation and collaboration, Medtronic improves the lives and health of millions of people each year. Join us in our commitment to take healthcare further together. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Courtney M. Rowan, MD, about the article, Implementation of Continuous Capnography is Associated with a Decreased Utilization of Blood Gases, published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine Research in 2015. Dr. Rowan is a critical care intensivist in the Department of Pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis, Indiana. Thanks for being with us today, Courtney. Thanks for having me. Courtney, would you start off with some background about capnography? How is it used? How is it useful? And what led you to do this study? Sure. When we first started to discuss implementing continuous capnography in our ICU, it was really championed by a group of intensivists that had had it at previous institutions where they had trained. And so they felt it was important to bring that technology into our unit. And we had had some mainstream continuous capnography that hooked onto the end of the ET tube, which was not used very often because of the small size ET tubes. The weight of the capnography would pull and mm-hmm. kink the ET tube. Mm-hmm. So they, this group had really championed the implementation of some side stream capnography. And the reason behind it was really a safety intervention that if we were able to continuously monitor the end tidal CO2, that this would essentially alert us to potential disasters such as the ET tube becoming dislodged or obstructed. And then in addition to that, our cardiac ICU really was behind putting in the continuous capnography because of the implications it can have with pulmonary hypertensive crises and changes in pulmonary blood flow. And then thirdly, they really liked the idea of implementing it because of the data coming out that says that this can be helpful in a cardiac arrest with return of spontaneous circulation. And so really, when we discussed implementing this in our ICU, it really was a patient safety issue and less of a, let's see if we can diminish the amount of blood gases that we were doing in our unit. We thought that the decrease in blood gas utilization would be essentially a nice side effect or a bonus, but the impetus behind it was really patient safety. So how did you go about doing your your study? So we decided that when we implemented it, we thought that there would be a lot of physicians that would sort of buy into the fact that these monitors are accurate in trending CO2 measurements in our patients and that that would naturally lead to a decrease in the amount of blood gases that we were doing. Before the implementation of the capnography, we would either spot check the end tidal CO2, which didn't happen very often, or we would get blood gases. So I think we had a high utilization of blood gas measurements in our ICU. So 
we decided to um, retrospectively look back at what was done the previous two years for the amount of blood gases that were taken. And then we looked at the past six months that we had implemented the continuous CO2 monitoring, and we compared the amount of blood gases that were done over those three time periods. We compared just total number of blood gases. And then we also, in an effort to sort of account for changes in acuity, we compared the amount of blood gases per patient day and also the amount of blood gases per ventilator day. How did you prepare your unit um, for implementation of this technology? You know, bringing in a new technology is not a simple process. And so how did you go about laying the groundwork for that? Absolutely. So I think that we really were able to get a lot of buy-in both from our physicians, nursing, and respiratory therapy by demonstrating all the literature that shows the safety implications of this technology. And it's really hard to get someone to say, oh, we don't want our patients to be safer. (laughs) I would hope so. (laughs) Yeah, so I, I think that because there is such a nice availability of literature and then just common sense of being able to trace the end tidal CO2, that it makes it easy to see why this would have positive implications for our patient's safety and to be able to have early recognition of ET tube dislodgement or obstruction. And we really hammered in the safety implications as we started to discuss it amongst both the physician group and the nursing and respiratory therapy group. And everybody got on board with with the safety feature of it. Where I think we had more of a challenge was discussing how accurate do we really think the displayed number is? How much does the continuous capnography correlate with what is actually in the blood when you check PCO2 on a venous or arterial blood gas? And we because we felt that was going to be a little bit of a challenge to say, yeah, you know, there's data that shows that these actually correlate pretty well. There's too many different physiology issues when you're looking at this to say that you're going to be able to use this 100% of the time as an accurate measure of your CO2. So we essentially didn't spend a lot of time trying to convince people that it was going to be useful for that aspect and really honed in on this is a safety issue. And when we did it that way, I think everybody was in agreement that it was an important piece to make in our unit, an important step to add to our unit. So did you uh, essentially begin using it on virtually every mechanically ventilated child? Yeah, so we started to educate about it about six months before we implemented it and then really picked up the education in the two to three months preceding the implementation. And then once we had the implementation date, we made it mandatory that every child that was intubated on a ventilator would have it put on. And I think we were very successful in this in that we charged the right group of people to do it. So we put this on the responsibility of the respiratory therapist, and then it became part of their standard ventilator checkoff list. So before it was part of the ventilator checkoff before any child ever got put onto the ventilator. And then we added a secondary fail-safe to make sure that it happened by making this part of our standard ventilation order set so that it was automatically pre-checked on that order set so that anytime you ordered your mechanical ventilation in your ventilator settings, you were ordering entitled CO2. What kind of challenges did you have in using capnography? 
I think that once we switch to the side stream technology and having it charged by the respiratory therapist, the challenges were pretty limited. It was sort of miraculous how all the respiratory therapists just started doing this. It became standard. And so almost all of our patients had it put on. Where we initially had some challenges was when we were running some of our nebulized treatments like continuous albuterol, and they would adjust the capnography, and then it would forget to be put back on. But since we've been doing it for a while now, those issues have fallen off. And the biggest issue was just the whatever stock the attending physician put in the number that was displayed and how many physicians actually believed it and how many physicians didn't believe it. And uh, I think that that's probably true to any kind of new technology that you're implementing in an ICU. And now that we have a lot more experience with it, I, I still think there's varying opinions about the accuracy of it, but there is a much more acceptance that the trend, at least, is something that we could rely on. When you looked at blood gas use, which is essentially what this study is about, what did you find? Yeah, so it was really interesting because the physicians didn't know that we looked at this, so I really think Ah. this was the practice that we found exhibited. No one knew we were checking to see how many blood gases they were doing. And We looked back over the two previous years prior to implementing it to make sure that we had a nice standing baseline. And when we looked at the six months after we had first implemented the technology, we noticed a dramatic decrease in the amount of blood gases that were being checked, almost 50%. We had a 40% decrease in the amount of blood gases. And I think that people were feeling more comfortable just monitoring the trends on the continuous capnography and feeling less like they needed to check a blood gas every time they made a ventilator change. Yes, from table one, it looks like a total number of blood gases in the three time periods you had in the two baseline years, about 13,000 blood gases for that six-month period. And then after you implemented this, about 8,000 blood gases. A huge difference. And even when you, one of the critiques that we were worried we would get is that we didn't have any markers of patient acuity. But I feel like we worked to overcome a little bit of that by breaking it down by ventilator day. And you can see that we hovered pretty close to five blood gases per ventilator day. And we cut that down to closer to three after implementing the continuous capnography which is a pretty significant change. How much did capnography cost, and was it worth it to save this number of blood gases? Yeah, so we used charge, the blood gas charge, as a marker of the financial cost of this because the difference between charge and cost is, I think, pretty difficult to get into. So we just standardly decide to use charge as a measure of how much financial incentive there was to this program. So it cost us a little over $100,000. It was $111,000 to purchase the monitors. And and that was essentially a one-time purchase because they were able to reuse those monitors throughout the six-month period. And when we looked back and analyzed the blood gas charge, we saw that in the previous two periods prior to the implementation, we were charging about $2.2 million in those study periods. And then when we looked at the six months after our implementation of the entitled CO2, we found that the blood gas charge was closer to $1.5 million. So there was a pretty substantial savings, even when you take into account the $100,000 that we had to spend for the monitors to begin with. 
The other interesting thing is that the charge for the blood gas went up over the time period. So even when we looked at the savings of $700,000, that was a savings when we were actually charging more for the blood gas. So when we took into the changes in cost, we had a savings of over $800,000 for blood gas charges. And this was just over a six-month period, so you can imagine extrapolating that over years of us doing this technology. Pretty impressive. Were you able to measure a difference in the amount of blood drawn, or did you look at that? You know, we didn't measure the amount of blood drawn because it's pretty difficult to tell. The way that we standardly run our blood gases in our ICU, our point of care, so the volume of blood that they use is pretty pretty minimal that we felt that was a little bit of an irrelevant piece for us. I could see how that might be potentially much more useful in units that send theirs down to the lab. But what we did discuss and um, postulate was that many of our patients had their blood drawn off of venous gas, and so there was a substantial amount of waste that had to be drawn off before they could draw the blood for the blood gas. And since the venous lines typically aren't an enclosed circuit, they would waste that 5 to 10 mLs that they pulled off. So we felt that there was probably likely a diminished amount of blood that was taken from the patient, but we didn't really have any way to prove that. What do you think the strengths are of your study? And by the same token, what are the limitations? Yeah, so I think the limitation piece is definitely the retrospective nature of this. We we have no way of telling why we were drawing blood gases, uh, what the indications were. And as you know, we don't blood gases aren't strictly drawn just to monitor what the CO2 is. Sometimes we're checking them for the oxygenation aspect. Sometimes we're checking them for electrolytes or lactate, particularly in the cardiac unit. We try to temper some of these limitations by we excluded all the cardiac patients to begin with because we felt like those patients had lots of blood gases drawn in order to follow trends in electrolytes and lactate. So we excluded those patients from the beginning. But still, we're not able to tell the reasoning behind the blood gas drawing, so that's definitely a limitation. From a positive um, aspect or things that we think that strengthen the study, I definitely think the comparison of the two time periods before compared to the six months post-implementation, the two time periods before were so similar that I really felt like we had a good idea of the baseline. Um, and that we really were making a difference, that we weren't looking at a year before that happened to be a high blip in blood gas utilization. It seemed like this was consistently our practice. And the other strength, I think, was the comparison um, per patient day and the comparison of blood gases per ventilator day, that that helped to sort of account for some of the uh, volume of patients that we were seeing and the acuity level that we were seeing. I think it was also uh, a strength that the docs involved didn't know you were going to be looking at the number of blood gases so that the study itself uh, didn't presumably influence the number of gases they decided to do. You could just look at how their practice was influenced. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that was a, a sneaky a sneaky strength of the study. <laughs> they were actually all very, when we presented the results to our group, they were all floored because everyone sort of had the idea that maybe they were doing a little less blood gases, but no one had realized to the extent uh-huh. of what it had done to cut down our blood gas utilization. Um, what advice do you have for other ICUs that might want to implement routine capnography um, such as you did? 
I think one of the biggest reasons for our, our success in being able to implement this is that we were able to involve the right group of people from the beginning. That we, while there was a group of physicians that championed the measure, it wasn't a physician solely driven project. We were able to implement the nursing staff. We were able to really get the respiratory therapist on board. And since the capnography is something that really is put to the charge of the respiratory therapist, you really need their input and their buy-in before you can implement a technology like this. Did you have any input or discussion with your laboratory personnel? You know, all of our blood gases almost are exclusively point of care, so there's very little going down to the lab. And so from our standpoint, we felt like the lab piece was a little irrelevant to what we were looking at. Our nurses pull off the blood gases off the line, and they run them right there at the bedside. And so there's not, there was not a, we didn't feel like the laboratory played a very large role in this particular study. The lab probably has to oversee any kinds of point of care use and make sure it gets in the documentation gets into the medical record and so forth. But this clearly wasn't going to be create a manpower burden on the laboratory. Right. And they have a nice system here where the point of care machine, when they put it in the docking station, it automatically uploads into our medical record. And so they had such a nice system in place that we didn't really address that. I can see, though, where um, the laboratory personnel might be a, a more integral piece of this at particular institutions where they're a little more involved. They're probably mostly involved at the point of implementing the point of care testing rather yeah. than rather than the capnography per se. Yes, yes. So do you have any um, final comments you'd like to make? Well, I think the biggest thing that came out of the study, we were obviously thrilled that we were able to decrease our blood gas utilization, not just for providing a cost-effective approach to care, but also for the diminishing access to the central lines and taking less blood away from the patients. We all thought that there were really positive things. But in the end, I think that the reason that we were successful is because we all wanted to do something that was going to make our patients safer. And it is definitely a positive to ha be able to implement a technology that we feel adds to the safety of the monitoring of our unit. And for the nurses, RTs, and physicians to all be able to come together and agree on that, I think is really um, the best thing that we were able to display with this study. And you have certainly made the point that making this a team effort with all parts of the healthcare team is, is really important to yeah, a successful absolutely. effort like this. Well, thank you very much, Courtney. I've enjoyed talking with you. I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. We have been talking today with Dr. Courtney Rowan from Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis, Indiana, about the article, Implementation of Continuous Capnography is Associated with a Decreased Utilization of Blood Gases, published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine Research in 2015. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. This podcast was sponsored by Medtronic, a global leader in medical technology, services, and solutions, improving the lives and health of millions of people each year. Let's take healthcare further, together. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts.
Dr. Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.